Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> Hello. <laughs> <clears throat> So, is this on? Is it on loud enough? You can hear. Doesn't seem loud. A little bit louder. No. Now can this stay on? Yeah, but it's not on. Okay. So. Uh, I know you probably know that the retreat is coming to a close soon. <laughs> Just in case you hadn't been keeping up with the schedule uh, and the manager's talk wasn't enough, um, you're going to be going home soon. Some people might be saying, yes. <laughs> Some people might be saying, no. And wherever you are, it's absolutely fine. It's just where you are. I wanted to uh, talk a bit about uh, bringing your practice into the world tonight. And you might have the question occur to you as you're about to leave, now what? What have I learned? Or how can I apply this to my life. How many people have that going on around their minds? Yeah, see you're not alone. Um, and people uh, will probably ask you, so how was it? <clears throat> <laughs> and uh, mostly they'll just want to know that you're okay. So uh, I, I wouldn't recommend you giving a detailed report day by day well, by the, the seventh sitting, this happened, and then by the eighth, but it kind of changed. Too much information. <laughs> you don't have to share it all. And in fact, I'd recommend uh, don't share it all. Because uh, possibly, probably, you've touched a few moments that have been uh, really meaningful to you. And uh, you want to be very, I would suggest you being very uh, judicious how, you, how many times you share that. Certainly there is probably uh, one or two people who it would be um, appropriate to share it with. Although maybe even those uh, you might want to wait if there's something very um, powerful that you're still digesting. Um, but it's, uh, it's good both to um, have some, something to say to people and also to reflect on um, what you have learned. Now, you might not have a clear answer right now. That's okay, too, because you've been planting very powerful seeds these last days that will continue to sprout, that will continue to blossom and reveal themselves um, over the course of the next months, half a year, year. It's not uncommon that people get in touch months later and say, oh, now now I'm getting it. I went through that and I learned this and I'm starting to shift a perspective a little bit. <clears throat> uh, so maybe something though has come, fix this, has become clearer to you. Uh, and before I say some things, I would just uh, ask you to Reflect for a few moments. Um, perhaps ask yourself, what have you learned? 
not so much um, any particular um, experience, but what's been the lesson or lessons that you are perhaps getting in touch with if they are somewhat uh, apparent? What might, might you take home with you? What might you apply to your life that might inform it in a, in a helpful, skillful way? So um, maybe before I go on, if you would like, we can take a few, perhaps, um, understandings or perspectives uh, that uh, some people have gotten in touch with. Just putting it in a, in a few words. Yes. The real possibility of letting go. Ah, the real possibility of letting go. Beautiful. Yes. Um, slowing down. Slowing down. Good thing. Thank you. Yes. I am not my thoughts. I am not my thoughts. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a big one. Yes. Same thing. Slowing down. Also, yes, something that hasn't been mentioned. The past is over. The past is over. Beautiful. Yeah. Self-love and acceptance, a really important one. It's okay to trust the Dharma. Yes. Have no fear. Have no fear. Okay. Or perhaps if you have fear, hold it kindly. <laughs> but lovely if you, there's something that has given you some fearlessness. Great. One last one. I am love. Mm. See, it's amazing. This stuff really works. <laughs> yeah. I've been leading these retreats for many years, and the first day or two, there's always the, you know, the question, well, maybe it won't work this time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it always seems to... And if you're not, as I said, you're not quite clear yet, don't worry about it. It'll start to reveal itself in, in many ways. Um, but you can just see the wisdom. And all of those things are mm, perhaps points that have been spoken about or pointed to or uh, that maybe you've heard before or read before. But each person, as they're saying it, uh, you can probably sense that it's not just words. It's an embodied experience. And that is the real gift that you've given yourself, not just reading something and spouting the knowledge conceptually, but putting in your time and actually seeing for yourself the truth. So it moves from... Uh, a conceptual level to an embodied experience. Oh, I'm love. I'm not my thoughts. You know, those, those comments, each one of them are life-changing. If, if they hadn't been embodied before now, and even if you, um, if you forget you might think, oh gosh, will I be able to remember this? And you know, I might, I might forget when I go home. You probably will forget from time to time. But once you've seen it, once you've seen the truth for yourself, even if it's obscured or uh, dormant or hidden or uh, um, whatever you want to say, it's there someplace you know the truth of it. You might pretend you don't or uh, have be, become so stressed that you forget and think, oh my goodness, I touched something back then and if I only uh, could remember, I've lost it. Don't 
think you've lost it. It's in there. And now it's a matter of continuing to deepen and cultivate what you absolutely know to be true. I I love this line uh, by Oliver Wendell Holmes, who says, um, a mind stretched by a new idea will not shrink back to its original dimensions. It might shrink back temporarily as you get contracted, but you've seen things in a bigger way. And I hope you are becoming more and more familiar with that ring of truth because when it hits, it's very potent and can't be ignored. I want to talk a bit about some uh, truths and principles and things to keep in mind um, that, um, that I find really helpful as a way to hold what, what we're doing here. <clears throat> First, I want to spend a little bit of time on something that I've uh, found extremely important, a shift of perspective around practice. And that is, this is a path that leads to true happiness. This is not just about enduring. This is not just about accepting, accepting our suffering, accepting our um, confusion and our self-judgments and our pains and our fears. That's very, very important. That's a, a, a an an essential piece in this process to accept it all and learn to um, to hold it all. But it's just part of the way. That's not the whole idea of this this practice. That this is actually a path that leads to the highest happiness. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the the discourse uh, that all of Buddhist meditation is based on, all of uh, mindfulness meditation is based on, and what we do here, um, the Buddha starts out with the words, uh, there is one direct way, sometimes translated, there is one most wonderful way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, end all pain and anxiety, and realize the highest happiness. That is the establishment of mindfulness. He says it straight out. This is what he found to be the most direct way to realize the highest happiness. Even if it seems like it's been more of a an endurance test or a, uh, uh, just a, a, something that, um, that might be confusing as to you know, what the point is. You have been, as I said, planting really potent seeds because mindfulness has a very unique property of all the qualities and factors of mind. And there's beautiful factors like love and compassion and joy and equanimity, and um, patience, all of those things. And then there's um, uh, challenging, difficult factors like greed, hatred, delusion, jealousy, fear, judgment, all of those. And of all the, the positive and negative factors, there's 52 in all in Buddhist psychology. It's kind of like the deck that you're you're dealt, you know. Sometimes it seems like not everybody has a full deck, but uh, (laughs) we'll just put that aside. Um, There's one quality that weakens all the unwholesome states and strengthens all the wholesome states. And as you probably can guess, that is mindfulness. That every single moment of mindfulness 
as um, as perhaps um, hard to see uh, uh, while you're in the middle of it. Every single moment of mindfulness, you are deconditioning habits of greed, hatred, and delusion, and strengthening habits of generosity, kindness, and wisdom. Isn't that cool? Every moment that you're here with the pleasant and not grasping, here for it but not grasping, or here with the unpleasant and not pushing away in aversion or fear, but opening up and being willing to be with that too, or not uh, taking, uh, not being confused or identifying with your experience like, uh, like he said, I'm not my thoughts. Every time you see clearly that you're not who you thought you are, that you are cultivating generosity, love, and wisdom. Every single one. So every moment counts. That's one of my main uh, inspirations when I'm practicing. Every single moment of mindfulness counts. So I said this in one of the groups, one little game I play with myself as I'm, as I'm uh, sitting on retreat is seeing how many moments of mindfulness I can develop that day. You know? it, it, just a little game, no failing this game, Ah, another moment, another moment, whether it's brushing my teeth or, uh, or feeling my breath. But as you probably have seen, as I'm saying, this is a, uh, a path that leads to true happiness. It's not easy. It's, it's work. And I, we all really acknowledge and, and bow to your sincerity and the, the effort that you've, you've put in in these days. It's not, especially if this is new to you uh, and you don't know what you've gotten into, um, <laughs> you, maybe you're starting to get it, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to, uh, for most people, at least at the beginning, to be willing to sit with everything. Whether it's sorrow, pain, loss, Grief, sadness, loneliness, self-judgment. Ah, and I can sit with this too. And out of that, you find a courage, a faith, a wisdom, a love, a compassion that you wouldn't have known otherwise you had in you. This is the real gift. And it's not just only by being with those things, although that's the first stage that comes up because generally we have to face the things that we usually distract ourselves with. But this is a path of happiness. The Buddha was called the happy one. And he said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. And the end of suffering is another way of saying the highest happiness. He said, go for it. Really go for it. Don't settle for the smaller stuff. As wonderful as that is, if it's wholesome, go for the highest happiness, a liberated mind, free of confusion, what, what is called the sure heart's release. He says in, in one discourse, I do not teach this for uh, pleasant experiences or contentment or virtue or any number of things that people might think, oh, that's a good thing to go for. He says, I really teach this for the sure heart's release, the, the heart that can be released from that contraction of, of, uh, of pain, of suffering, of holding on. And the, uh, the Dalai Lama, um, as uh, perhaps many of you have, have look, seen his book, The, the uh, Art of Happiness, he starts out his book with this line, the purpose of life is to be happy. Just let that land. The purpose of life is to be happy.
You might think, gosh, that's a pretty selfish, self-indulgent thought. But the good news is if you experience genuine happiness, true happiness, then all of the beautiful qualities in you shine through. So you don't do anybody a favor by putting your own happiness last. In fact, you're not coming from the deepest place of your true nature. So just really seeing this as a path of happiness, and I wanted to briefly mention a a few um, uh, principles that I find very helpful that I I teach in that Awakening Joy course that that somebody mentioned. Um, Just some basic uh, principles that the Buddha talks about. One is, it's important to know where real happiness lies. And it doesn't lie in the next experience, the next acquiring, the next, um, you know, pleasant moment, as wonderful as that is. But there are these deeper states of well-being that I just mentioned. That's where the real happiness lies. Not out there, but in here. And he said in another discourse that um, when you are feeling a moment of well-being, to notice the gladness, that feeling of uplift, of inspiration, of delight that accompanies real happiness and wholesome states. It doesn't necessarily even mean bells and whistles, but just you've probably, hopefully, touched one moment or two of well-being while you've been here. Probably more. Don't miss it. Don't think that this practice is about just noticing the moments of suffering and being able to deal with them. No, he says, notice the gladness that's connected with the wholesome. He he says in this discourse, that gladness connected with what is wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. A moment of well-being can dissolve all the confusion and the tension and the contraction. And the third principle that, uh, that I um, like to share with people is that the mind and the heart can be trained. As he says in one discourse, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. If you frequently think and ponder upon what a loser you are, that will become the inclination of your mind or how everybody around is going to disappoint you or how the humanity is going down the tubes. That's what you'll see. There is this principle in neuroscience called a confirmation bias where whatever your belief is, you will see through that lens to confirm your hypothesis. If you more and more incline your mind to see, oh, there's really goodness inside here. Or others really want to be happy and there's goodness in them too. Or it's amazing to be alive. That's what you start to notice. So you can train the heart and the mind. In neuroscience, there's this famous axiom by Donald Hebb, neurons that fire together, wire together. And that's what we're doing here. We are wiring wholesome pathways, neural pathways in the brain, and it can be cultivated. And when you have those moments that have touched you deeply, they give you faith and you start to incline in a wholesome way. Now, going through your own dukkha definitely is a very profound thing, as I mentioned a bit. It's humbling, isn't it? But that's how we grow. And as long as you're learning, then there's no mistakes. There's nothing that's wasted. 
going through your own dukkha gives you, as I said, courage and faith and, and, and strength. And actually, it can lead to a deeper kind of uh, inspiration. There's one teaching that the Buddha talks, uh, talks about or uh, teaches, you can Google this, uh, transcendental dependent arising, it's called, if you want to impress your friends, okay? And he starts out by saying, suffering can be a causative factor for faith to arise. Faith can lead to gladness, gladness can lead to joy, can lead to happiness, contentment, peace, all the way up to um, the highest happiness. I want to ask you, how many people here have been motivated by their suffering to look for deeper answers in life that have led them to spiritual exploration? Look around. This is how it works. And of course, you wouldn't want to wish that on anybody, but suffering wakes us up. It shakes us out of our complacency to try to find some deeper meaning than just the next ice cream cone or whatever it is, as much as I like ice cream, by the way. Mm. So when you see that suffering or your mind humbling you, here's the little shift that I hope you've been understanding and that is rather than being bummed out by seeing what's in there appreciate that you're starting to see it because if you don't see it it'll be operating anyway but you'll just be completely in ignorance bound to keep on repeating the same mistakes but when you can see it, as humbling as it is at the beginning, you're starting to wake up. I see you, Mara, as the Buddha said. You might be familiar with Mara, the, or maybe you're not. The embodiment, kind of the equivalent, the Buddhist equivalent of the devil. The, the embodiment of confusion and trying to uh, tempt and... Uh, and knock the Buddha off his seat just before he was enlightened and comes to confuse. This is the embodiment, as they say. And there's a whole selection of uh, discourses in the, uh, in the Pali Canon, the, the Mara discourses, where after the Buddha is enlightened, not before, after the Buddha is enlightened, Mara comes and visits the Buddha about there's about 20 or so discourses. You know, the Mara comes and, and says, uh, you call yourself an ascetic? You're sleeping four hours a night. What kind of a wimp are you? Or some, something like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it a bit. You know? <laughs> and each time the Buddha sees and says, I see you, Mara. And Mara slinks away. Curses foiled again, you know. <laughs> if Mara can come and visit the Buddha, cut yourself a little slack. You know. <laughs> and every time you see that confusion, appreciate that you're seeing it. Pema Chodron, who I'm sure many of you have read and, and love, she has this line that I, I really love. She says, um, Take delight in that which sees the dukkha. That is, feel really good that you're seeing it. Don't get caught in the dukkha that you're seeing. Oh, there it is again. Oh my God. But wow, I'm seeing it. Ah, how wonderful. I'm waking up. And as you do this, you can see how empty it is, perhaps. See your thoughts, and when you see, oh, I'm not my thoughts, and you're not bothering or struggling with them, they self-liberate. That's a, a, a Tibetan phrase. Oh, thoughts just self-liberate. 
You don't have to do anything to undo them. They're just very ephemeral wisps if you don't feed them. But it's not always easy to see them as that empty. So when you do get caught, which we do, or the cortisol is running through your body because you've been triggered, then you just hold it all with compassion. And don't need to get rid of anything or, uh, or find a way to, uh, uh, to manipulate. You just hold it all with compassion. And the more you can do that for yourself, the more you are learning to be there for others. And this is um, a very empowering thing to learn to see you have this capacity and you have the wisdom inside of you. If you hear somebody say something that sounds wise and that you say, yeah, gosh, they're so wise. Don't get fooled into thinking the wisdom is out there. As, as much as it might be, it's touching a place inside of you that says, yep, right on. We're just reminding each other. That's all. And what we're do- doing more and more is learning to listen inside for our own wisdom. You can think of that, I think of that as how this practice works, that um, we're more and more learning to listen to the truth of this moment. Oh, right now here's breathing, and here's hearing, and here's a sensation, and here's sadness, and here's love. We're listening to the truth in this moment so we get better and better at listening to the truth. No matter what the circumstance is. And as we're learning, there's a a beautiful um, uh, image in Tibetan uh, uh, Buddhism, uh, the great yogi Milarepa. And you can always tell it's Milarepa because he has his hand to his ear. That's... He's listening to the 100,000 Dharma songs. And we're, that's what we're doing here. We're learning to listen more and more to the truth inside and more and more to trust that it's right in there. This is what we did when at the beginning we took refuge in the Buddha. You don't have to figure everything out. You can't know what's going to happen in the future. You don't have enough information yet to know what's going to happen in the future. You can have a game plan, but as far as what happens, you don't know, and you can't control so that you won't have to face dukkha. And so sometimes people say, well, what is faith anyway? If I really have faith, does that mean everything's going to work out just the way I want? No. But real faith, sadha, putting one's heart upon, it's, it is, the real tra- is the literal translation. Trust is trusting that your awareness will meet the moment when that moment comes. It always has, or at least when you've been in touch with that clarity, you've known what to do now. Maybe not 10 minutes from now, but now. And you're learning more and more to listen to the truth. One encouragement that I have, if you're not sure what to do, to just ask yourself, what do I need right now? What do I need? What do I need to thrive? What do I need to show up fully? What do I need to take really good care of myself? And listening, not from what do I want, but what do I really need? And listening to that ring of truth, it's right there. And if you're not sure, it's okay to reach out. It's okay to say, hey, I'm a little confused. That's why we're here for each other. We're all here for each other. That's what friends are for, as the song goes. And you might say, oh, I need to reach out. That's just as important and healthy as saying, I can figure this out by myself. 
So given that and listening to the truth, okay, now what will you do with this? I gave a talk the other week um, in Berkeley. I have a uh, sitting group in Berkeley, which you're all invited to on Thursday nights. And uh, I entitled it, uh, after the Mary Oliver poem, uh, Summer Day, the famous line, but I changed around the line, what will you do with your wild and precious good karma? Everybody here has amazing good karma. What are you going to do with that? You might not even realize it. We, we can be so busy seeing how life is being unfair to us or bringing some hardship that we don't see the bigger picture of our lives in this world. First, to reflect on a classical reflection, you have been born a human. Amazing good karma. <laughs> it said, this is the best realm, even better than being born in the heaven realms. This is the best realm for waking up because this realm has both sorrow and joy, enough sorrow to open your heart and want to wake up to a deeper kind of happiness, enough joy to appreciate um, the goodness in life, even better than the heaven realms. It's said that you know, it's an extraordinarily rare thing to do, to be born a human. There's an image of a turtle surfacing to the, the, the surface of, an, of the ocean from the depths once every hundred years and there's a yoke, a wooden yoke, and the chances of that turtle surfacing in that yoke are greater than being born a human. You might say, whoa, hold on a moment, that's, that's a bit much. <laughs> Try this on for size. Right now, in your mouth, there are more living beings than there's been humans since the beginning of time. <laughs> many more. And in your belly, much more. Many, many more times. It's amazingly rare to be born a human. Even rarer of all the possibilities of a human birth here we are in incredibly privileged circumstances. We're not afraid if we're, uh, of, of not having food on our table, probably most of us here at night. When we have a, sh a, a shelter over our heads, we're probably not in fear of of uh, being in a war zone. Um, so that's pretty amazingly good karma. The fact that we are inclined with all of these benefits to see where the real happiness lies, that you are um, wanting to wake up to hear the Dharma at the right time, this is a blessing supreme, it says in, in the Mangala Sutta, the Blessing Sutta, to discuss or practice the Dharma at the right time, this is a real blessing supreme. To come here, this upper middle path retreat center, as it's sometimes called, you know, <laughs> privileged, this is amazing good karma. Now what are you going to do with it? Is it just so you can feel good and, and uh, enjoy the fruits? With this amazing gift, first to not miss the fact that you are so blessed. What are you going to do with it? What's going to make your life, give your life meaning? And so I want to talk a little bit uh, the question that was raised 
this morning about making a difference in the world. Because it's, it's one thing to enjoy the blessings of this good life for ourselves, but it's a very, it's a, a limited um, expression of our practice. The, the full flowering of practice is compassion. The full flowering of practice is caring and we're wired up to care. We have these mirror neurons that, that are touched or moved when we see pain around us or our heart breaks or somebody is having a hard time and if we have the energy and the presence for it, we, we want to help. Not just to make them feel better, but it feels better for us too. The, the Dalai Lama has this phrase uh, I love. Um, we do things out of selfish altruism. And he says, this is a good thing. Don't feel guilty because you are expressing your caring out of the fact that it's going to feel good. Don't do it so you'll get a stroke and uh, as, as the main motivation. Oh, then they'll like me. But if you're coming out of a place of just genuine caring, it feels really good. It's, a, it's one of the best ways to get out of your own drama, melodrama, to uh, reach out and be there for somebody else. As I know many people here do. This is from uh, Yoshil Kempo, a wonderful Tibetan master. We are not practicing for ourselves alone since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified inside of us, purified, transformed in us, and become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. So, uh, if you're wondering what to do, uh, you'll have plenty of opportunities. There's enough suffering to go around. And I know that many people here uh, are really torn by all the sorrow and pain and, and suffering in the world. And a natural response to that is anger, is outrage, is frustration. That's just part of the deal, letting your heart break but not to stop there. That's, again, a very limited um, perspective because underneath that outrage is a deep caring. Underneath that anger is a genuine love. Underneath that frustration is wanting to see a just world, a world where humanity takes a role of being a steward, being a, a wise, um, a wise care giver to the world instead of being run by greed and hatred. So you might say, how can I deal with all of this craziness in the world? How can I, how can I deal with all of these, these power-hungry um, people or uh, conglomerates of people that don't see 
And this is a, a great task to, to somehow sort out in our minds. And the basic Buddhist practice and, and Buddhist teachings have a, so much to offer in this field of engagement in making a difference in the world. Buddhist practice says, the way I understand it anyway, the real villain is not those people. The real villain is ignorance. The real villain is not seeing clearly the consequences of actions. Even the most powerful, greedy person probably would want their grandchildren to have a good world. But somehow they haven't connected the dots and seeing, oh, what I do here has huge consequences in 10 or 20 or 40 years or tomorrow. So to just see in terms of, oh, they just don't see clearly. You know, like Jesus saying, forgive them, they know not what they do. That it is such a profound teaching and such a, a demanding teaching to see with compassionate understanding why someone does what they do. And you can have this as a practice, not just for the big, the big picture issues, but just in terms of the people that we relate to, that everybody has their own reality that makes sense to them, often colored by confusion. But it all makes sense to them. You ever have that, that feeling somebody does something that either is jarring or kind of off-putting, you say, why are they doing that? You know? <laughs> or how could they do that? But you don't go the next step and say, oh, why might they be doing that? Oh, what would be going on inside of somebody that would make them act a certain way? The Dalai Lama has a, um, a, a, a really great teaching. He says, when somebody is doing, doing something that is, um, uh, that, is seem, that is causing you suffering, uh, understand that they're not doing it generally to upset you or to cause you suffering. It's just that their internal reality is intersecting with your internal reality in a way that does not match up with your hopes and expectations. But we're all walking around with our own reality. So sure that if just everybody else would see the truth, this would be really a much better world. If everybody would see it the way I do, no problem. However, we don't realize that everybody is walking around pretty much with that thought, <laughs> unless you are seeing more clearly. You can't know what somebody else is going through. You can't know what their genetic makeup is. You can't know what their conditioning has been. You might guess, and if you give them the benefit of the doubt and see, hmm, I wonder what it must be like to be inside there. That's a huge step towards bridging that, that gap and that gulf. The more you can see for yourself, this is one of the gifts of practice, the more you can see for yourself how you get confused, even when you see better and you still get caught in your habits. Can you imagine how challenging it is when somebody doesn't have a clue 
or can't read the world around them or is lost in their fears or traumas. So this is a high level of applying your practice. Compassion is one of the sublime states, one of the divine abodes, along with loving kindness and joy and equanimity. Compassion is defined as the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. And I always find it interesting to think of the fact that that sublime state requires suffering as a prerequisite. Not that suffering is sublime, but the caring that it evokes is. And the more you can bring compassion and kindness towards yourself, the more you can start to feel that for others. And the more courage you have to make a difference in this world. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, the premier translator of the teachings uh, of the Pali Canon, who is a very courageous, um, inspiring activist. He says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve into a one-sided way, in a one-sided way, and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of immense suffering, which daily hounds countless human lives, can present only a resigned a quietism. In each historical period, the Dharma finds new means to unfold its potential in ways precisely linked to that era's distinctive historical conditions. I believe that our own era provides the appropriate historical stage for the transcendent truth of the Dharma to bend back upon the world and engage human suffering at multiple levels, even the lowest, harshest, and most degrading level, levels, not in mere contemplation, but in effective relief-granting action illuminated by its own world-transcending goal. Just a couple of more sentences. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience, conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. Julia Butterfly Hill, who's the, uh, the um, woman who sat in a tree for two years uh, to save the redwoods and one of my real heroes and inspirations, um, she talks about making a difference in the world and she gives these speeches, uh, these talks, mesmerizing. Uh, and people, she says, people often come up to her afterwards and say, oh, Julia, you've inspired me so. And her response is, oh, that's so wonderful. Inspired you to do what? <laughs> it's very limiting if the inspiration just goes into a, a feeling of, oh, it's so good that they're doing that. Uh, Angelus Arian, who passed away this year, a wonderful wisdom teacher, said, action absorbs anxiety. That we need to express our caring, and it might not be the grandiose saving the world. I've gotten very involved in climate change in, in uh, recent years when I 
read Bill McKibben's book, Earth, and my heart just broke. It took me a couple of years to process my grief. And then I said, I've got to do something. And it's been beautiful to see in the last couple of years, in the last year particularly, just a whole lot of other Dharma teachers as well, all saying, okay, we want to do something about this. And uh, I'll, I'll mention more about it tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning. But we need to find ways to express our caring. As um, Andrew Harvey, very inspiring guy, he wrote this book called The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism. He says, uh, if you wonder what to do, follow your heartbreak. If your heart is breaking, if it's so hard to handle it, follow your heartbreak. See what you can do to bring a little bit more kindness and love into the world and wisdom into the world. And don't think it's up to you to save the world. That's taking on a bit too much. But actually, if you're not coming from fear, fear or overwhelm is not a sustainable place to act from. But if you can come from how much you care, how much you want to express your love, how much you love this planet, if it's climate change, or how much you love uh, seeing people uh, a bit happier, um, that is much more magnetizing than fear or anger. So finding ways to express your caring and love, it feels good. It's not depleting. It feels good, as I'm sure just probably everybody here knows. And don't worry about saving the world. Just put a little bit more kindness and caring and understanding into the world, and that has its rippling effect. And that touches others. Just like anger can be contagious, love is contagious, much more contagious. As one of my friends says, we're in a race between fear and consciousness. And consciousness trumps fear. It'll be interesting to see the timing on this. But your job, I see my job, is putting, bringing a little bit more consciousness into the world. And that's... If you're coming from love, that's a very um, beautiful gift that has its rippling effects because it's just love finding itself and awakening itself in all of us. Our compassion has to be balanced, as Howie said in the, this morning, with equanimity. We can't take on so much that our heart breaks. And the equanimity is saying, Yes, there is real suffering and sorrow, and this is part of life. And how can I be there in a way that doesn't completely uh, implode? If somebody, if you're having a hard time, and somebody comes and says, oh, I feel so awful for you, I can't stand it, this is just tearing me apart, what can we do to fix this? How does that feel? Is that comforting? then you gotta take care of them, right? <laughs> but if somebody is saying, oh, this must be so hard, I want you to know I'm right here with you and I really care, but they find some center that says, it's okay, I'm here with you. We'll just do the best we can. That's comforting. And so a, another gift of our practice is finding equanimity to hold all of this sorrow and suffering. And equanimity says, you don't have all the answers. There is a lawful unfolding of karma and you just contribute your part. That's enough. And we don't do this by ourselves. We do this together. Came across a study that said, um, when people hold each other's hands, their threshold for pain and suffering is much higher, physiologically. 
that's how it works. We know how comforting it is to have some support and health. So this is what, as we've said before, comes back to refuge in the Sangha. So I'll close with this poem by Dana Falls about just what we're doing here together. This is called Sangha. Teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fire in our hearts. When we stand side by side, let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. May we be reminders each for the other that the path of transformation passes through the flames. To take one step is courageous. To stay on the path day after day, choosing the unknown, and together facing yet another fear. That is nothing short of grace. So let's uh, sit for a moment. for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.